well. This man really is the savior of the world. That's the conclusion that the people of Sychar, Sitchar, Sychar, whatever that town in Samaria was called. This man really is the savior of the world. I wonder what conclusion you have reached about Jesus. Is he really the savior of the world? This story, this account of uh, Jesus passing through the region of Samaria and having a conversation at a well with a woman brings to a conclusion this sermon series that we followed for the last two or three months called Margin to Middle. It's a sermon series in which we have been exploring how so often people who are marginalized in the eyes of their society are found right at the middle of Jesus' attention in the Gospels, and how Jesus takes people who are often shunned and ostracized and separated and brings them right to the very heart of God's plans and purposes. And we've used it to explore what was going on in the Bible, how Jesus is with people, and then to reflect on how Jesus might be with us, how Jesus might be with people in our society who often find themselves on the margins or ostracized. And we've explored, um, uh, I talked a bit in the opening sermon about honor shame culture and about how people find themselves um, marginalized. We talked then a bit about um, Zacchaeus and his wealth and about, about uh, how he made his wealth. We explored the Gerasene demoniac uh, and talked about those who suffer from mental and emotional health problems. We talked about children and uh, families and parents and how they can find themselves marginalized. Um, we've explored uh, how lepers uh, were marginalized with Andrew last week. We've, we've gone through a whole range of different things. Um, and we thought about uh, Mary Magdalene as well um, as uh, a woman. And we're ending with this Samaritan woman who is actually marginalized in multiple ways in Jesus' day. If there's been um, a sort of insight in the past few years with the Black Lives Matter movement or critical race theory, it's probably been this concept of intersectionality, the idea that sometimes lots of deprivations, lots of vulnerabilities, lots of ways in which people experience being marginalized combine and have a cumulative impact that is even more uh, powerful in people's lives and helping us to be alert to the layers uh, that people experience, layer upon layer of feeling um, marginalized, ostracized, excluded. And this particular woman seems to have uh, at least three different layers uh, that have caused her to be marginalized. And we're going to tackle some of them or think about some of them as we go through. But first and foremost, she is a Samaritan. She's in Samaria. The region of Samaria is to the north of Judea. Judea was the southern area of uh, the kingdom of Israel. And in fact, after Solomon's death, uh, the, two, the kingdom split into two, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And Judea was the southern kingdom. Uh, and there was a region um, below Galilee, Galilee where Jesus was raised. There was, there was a, a region below Galilee but above Judea called Samaria. Um, be kind of contemporary nowadays with uh, sort of Jaffa, that area north of Tel Aviv in contemporary Israel and that sort of region. Um, and it was, uh, it was not Jewish territory for slightly complicated reasons. You see, in the history of the Old Testament, in the history of the people of Israel, after, those, uh, after the 
kingdom of Solomon had split into a southern kingdom and a northern kingdom, the northern kingdom had fallen to the Assyrians around 721 uh, BC. And its people had been deported and scattered all around the region in sort of indentured servitude of one kind or another. Some of them had returned, but effectively their, their identity as God's faithful people had sort of been shattered and scattered. The inhabitants of the southern kingdom, Judea, uh, remained uh, sort of faithful to God, basically, uh, through temple worship at Jerusalem, through following the law, until um, 587 when they were deported and taken into exile in Babylon. Then around 539, uh, there's an edict issued by Cyrus, and they're allowed to return. Um, and during this time of exile in Babylon, they have a very strong formation of their identity. Some of the Psalms are written in this time in exile. And so when they come back to Jerusalem, and this is all reported under Ezra and Nehemiah, um, they have a very strong sense that God has favored his people and brought them back. When they come back, they discover that this area, uh, this region of Samaria, has got some of the former generations that have been deported under the Assyrian conquest inhabiting it, but they don't think that they're real Jews. They don't think they're real ones because they didn't experience the exile. They didn't stay faithful to God in Babylon. They didn't get restored and returned to the land. So there is a, a, there is a contested identity. There's a division between the Jews of the southern kingdom and uh, the, the, those northern kingdom Israelites who had been scattered, deported through the Assyrian conquest and then restored. I'm telling you far more than you need to know, I, experience, I expect. But the point you need to understand is there is enmity between the Jews and the Samaritans, the inhabitants of that region of Samaria. And it's not that they are completely different people groups or completely different genealogies. It's that there was a sort of split and there's a contested identity. I think perhaps the best analogy for us that we might get our heads around it with would be like Catholics and Protestants in Glasgow or Northern Ireland. Yeah? So there is a shared lineage, but there is actually pretty deep enmity uh, for various reasons. And this is not even really religious difference necessarily in quite a, a, a substantial way. It's identity politics as well. So this woman is a Samaritan, and being a Samaritan uh, means that faithful Jews despise them. And it says that in the text. It says the Jews do not have anything to do with the Samaritans. Um, she's also uh, a, a, a woman, and um, we'll come to that in a moment, but that also meant that she was lower down the social hierarchies than a Jewish male rabbi. Uh, but she's also unmarried, or at least she's had five previous husbands, and we're going to come to this later. But note that it's around noon, the text says, that she comes to get water in the well. Why is that noteworthy? Well, because that's the hottest part of the day, and that's not usually when you go to collect water from the well. People would go out in the morning or in the evening to collect water when it was cooler, uh, and they could meet and they could assemble and they could socialize. This woman has gone at noon when other people won't be there. She's gone at a time when she'll be alone, because if she is there with other people, she might experience gossip, she might experience abuse, she might experience insults, all kinds of things. So that's noteworthy about this context. Um, but I want to suggest to you today, in the limited time that I have, that this encounter at the well suggests something to do with a wedding. And we're going to get to that a little bit later. So I want to think today about the well, the water, the woman, and the wedding, and about these themes and how they tie together in this gospel account. Let's start with the well. 
Now, I expect that um, you, like me, if you are thirsty and you need a drink, you get your water bottle and you go to the tap, you turn the tap on, and uh, you fill your water bottle and you have water to take with you for the rest of the day. And the advent of running water into our homes in the Western world has been transformative. But actually, it's not how all of human society through human history has experienced collecting water. We don't need to travel with buckets or pails to a communal well in a village to collect water. I mean, I say that. Some of us who go to Focus next week will need to go and do that. Um, but here's the key thing. We no longer need to interact with other human beings in order to survive. Think about that. Your, your basic need for water every day, you can fulfill without speaking to anybody, without interacting with anybody, without seeing anybody. And that's actually quite uncommon in the whole of human history. For most of human history, in most human societies, you have to go to a shared resource. You have to speak with other people. You might be excited about seeing other people. You might be nervous about seeing other people. But one way or another, wells have been places of community for the development of society. The well was a place in which people from different families or households could meet and mingle. They might exchange information and news. They might do some business. The well was also a place where men and women might meet, and the beginnings of negotiations concerning marriages might begin. The text that Morag read for us references the fact that Jesus has stopped at what was known as Jacob's well. Jacob's well? Jacob's well, uh, the account of which you can read in Genesis 28. Remember the story in the, the, the establishment of Israel, the story of the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and how uh, Jacob cheats his brother Esau out of his inheritance uh, and uh, under, under threat of violence has to flee and go to his cousin Laban's territory. Uh, to try and uh, survive and tr try and uh, find a future for himself. And when he travels to his cousin Laban's territory in this region, now known as Samaria, um, he, he finds a well. And when he gets to the well, he finds a woman there, Rachel. And uh, he falls for her. He's infatuated. Um, because these sorts of things can happen at watering holes, at wells. And this is Jacob's well. Uh, remember in the story that Laban takes advantage of Jacob's infatuation with Rachel and Jacob has to work for him for seven years only to then find himself cheated and marrying Leah under false pretenses uh, with a veil uh, and then he has to work for another seven years until he can get uh, Rachel to be his wife as well. But he gets his own back because he mingles sheep and goats and he does some clever stuff with the flocks. Uh, anyway, that's all... Um, an aside. The point is, this well where Jesus is encountering the Samaritan woman is the one that is claimed to have been where Jacob met Rachel. And Jacob and Rachel went on to be the progenitors the, the, of the sons of Israel, the tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes. They're, they're, they're really important in the founding of the identity of the people of Israel, the, the children of Jacob uh, and Rachel and Jacob and Leah and Jacob and some others, become the 12 tribes of Israel. We're not going to delve into the morality, all of that. But the point is, this well is really important for Israel's founding narrative. And here is Jesus talking with a woman at a well to re-found a new Israel, to establish some new way of 
relating, operating, some new precedent for what God's kingdom would be like. Because the indication of this conversation with this Samaritan outcast woman is that somehow God's new Israel, the new Israel that we founded from this well, will somehow include the foreigner, the marginalized, the outcast, the excluded. Something new is happening at this well. The well, the water. Jesus gets into a dialogue with the woman about water, and they seem to be talking at cross purposes because Jesus is talking about living water. And he says this is a metaphor for spiritual satisfaction. So verses 13 and 14, he says this, Jesus answers, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, this water in the well. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He's talking about a spiritual reality that is established in our lives when we come to Jesus and we find our thirst satisfied in him. But the woman uh, is talking about something entirely different. She's still talking about literal water. So verse 15, she responds, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She doesn't want to keep coming to this well to draw water because it's risky and threatening. She might be seen, she might be spat at, she might be abused. She wants to have her thirst satisfied, but she's still talking literally at this point. Now, indeed, there are actually two different Greek words that are translated as water in our English translations. Uh, The woman uses the word freer, and Jesus uses the word peje. And these are actually words associated with masculine and feminine forms of water. It's a little complicated and convoluted, so I won't go into that. But it does hint towards some kind of coming together, some kind of new union, some kind of marriage at this well. But there is also a risk of another kind of unity, uh, another kind of union at play in the text about this water. And that's the risk of ritual impurity from sharing a cup. Jesus says, draw for me some water. He's asking the woman to use her vessel to hand it to him so that he may drink. Now, if Jesus drinks from this vessel that the woman uses for water, he's exposed to ritual impurity that comes from sharing a cup with a non-Jew and a woman. Andrew's talk last week was really fantastic uh, for helping us think about uh, some of the Levitical kind of um, cleanliness and purity code. So if you, didn't, if you weren't here last week, I do encourage you to go back to YouTube and watch that. And he had a lovely phrase. He said um, that uh, in Jesus we discover that holiness is not the way in, but holiness is the way on. So in other words, uh, it was... It was in Jesus' society, in his day, people thought you had to keep yourself absolutely ritually pure and clean and holy so that you could come into God's presence. And, and Andrew was helping us see that in G- Jesus was saying, no, that's not the case. But holiness, cleanliness, purity is the way on in Christian living. Now, this might seem peculiar to us, this whole idea that you could become ritually unclean just by sharing a cup of water that somebody gives you. Um, But think about our approach to sharing vessels these past couple of years with COVID. We've been socially anxious about being contaminated by sharing cups. The idea of hygiene and the risk of infection is closely linked to ideas of ritual purity in the Jewish culture of Jesus' day. Because the work of the priests in the Old Testament under the Levitical purity codes was partly health care. I think it's really helpful for us to think the priests, when we read about priests in the Old Testament, they are the sort of NHS workers, the kind of nurses and doctors and consultants and physicians who help society 
flourish and thrive physically and help to give basic hygiene and sanitation instructions to stop people from spreading diseases or sickness. Once you start to read through that paradigm, a lot of it makes a bit more sense. And you can also understand why we, as a society, now go out and engage ourselves in ritual acts of worship of the NHS, like clapping for carers on a Thursday night during COVID. Do you remember that? Um, it's very interesting, isn't it, that the high priesthood of our society are probably NHS workers. Um, just interesting to reflect upon. Uh, no judgment, really, on that, but interesting to deal with. I've lost my place. Uh, there we are. Whatever else might be, that's what happens when you go off script. Whatever else might be considered about the water, note this. Verse 28, which we didn't read. Verse 28, the woman leaves her water jar and returns to the town. Well, she went to the well to draw water to satisfy her thirst, but she goes back to the town without the vessel that she came to collect water in. It's as though the text, it's as though John wants us to understand her thirst has been satisfied in Jesus. Now she is filled with this spiritual water that she has drunk from the well that is Christ. She's not so concerned about her water jar. It's highlighting for us that though physical water is important and necessary for our survival, this living water that Jesus offers is vital as well. And so the well and the water, and now the woman. Back to the woman. Jesus should have avoided associating with her if he had concern for his public appearance. If he was really thinking about his reputation, uh, about his, um, you know, his impact on the gram, uh, on his followers, he would not have uh, sat down with a Samaritan woman at a well. And, the, and we know this, the disciples are surprised, verse 27, to find him talking with a woman because he's already a notable public religious leader. We know this from the accounts that we've read so far in John's Gospel about people and the disciples who are with him and the status he holds at the wedding in Cana in Galilee uh, and the status he holds with Nicodemus, uh, a member of the ruling Jewish council, coming to see him under cloak of darkness at night. Jesus is a significant public figure and leader. And, and while in our day, significant public leaders and figures will often go and make visits to factories or work sites or places that might be seen to be sort of demeaning or underneath them. In Jesus' day, it wasn't done. If you want to have a little bit of a lens, some of you will remember not very far from here uh, in, in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, the Mild May Hospital was housing um, AIDS sufferers and Princess Diana went to visit and sat and held hands with um, AIDS, HIV patients in the Maumee Hospital just down the road, just 500 meters from here uh, in the late 80s and, and the early 90s. And this was a point where there was massive social fear and anxiety about HIV AIDS. Uh, and here was a princess going and sitting with people. And it was quite shocking and some people thought it was inappropriate and some people thought it was admirable. It divided opinion. I've gone off script again, sorry. Um, Tom Wright observes this. He says, in the culture of Jesus' day, many devout Jewish men would not have allowed themselves to be alone with a woman. If it was unavoidable that they should be, they would certainly not have entered into conversation with her. The risk, they would have thought, was too high. Risk of impurity, risk of gossip, risk ultimately of being drawn into immorality. And yet Jesus is talking to this woman. So the woman is a Samaritan. She's a woman as we've already noted, and a devout Jewish rabbi should not be associating with a Samaritan, let alone a woman, or a woman, let alone a Samaritan. The intersectionality is running deep, 
deep. But the woman clearly also has some kind of social stigma associated with her because she's come at noon when nobody else will be there. And she reveals that she doesn't have a husband. She's with a man now who's not her husband, already having had five husbands. I was once at a wedding, and uh, the, the, the wedding reading was um, 1 John 4.18. You all know 1 John 4.18, right? Perfect love casts out all fear. And it was designed for the preacher to then eulogize and, and, and speak about the, the joy of marital love, uh, giving you trust to go out beyond yourselves. But it was misprinted in, um, in, the, uh, in, in the order of service. And instead of being printed as 1 John 4.18, it was printed as John 4.18, which reads... The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. <laughs> it was a comic moment. Um, so always double-check your printed order of service for the Bible references. Where was I? We should be careful about our assumptions here. Now, we can be socially conditioned to think uh, that this woman is of low moral character, as though she is notching up husbands one after another when she gets bored of the previous but remember that in this culture, women had no power to divorce their husbands. They were only divorced by their husbands. This is a point that uh, Stephen Backhouse brought out for us a couple of years ago when he came to spend a, a weekend with us during our 10th theology project. So this woman has been dismissed several times already from marital homes. Why? We don't know. But I hazard a guess that it might be to do with the fact that she's confident in conversation, debate, and discussion. Look at how she's talking with Jesus. Like, she's thoughtful and intelligent. She knows her history. Our ancestors say you were supposed to worship here, but you're, you Jews say you're supposed to worship there. I mean, I feel like maybe her previous husbands just wanted a silent and submissive wife. And what they had was a woman who knew her mind, had thoughts, opinions, and feelings. And they didn't really like that, and so they were threatened. So they cooked up some charges about poor cooking or poor cleaning and divorced her. Perhaps it was just men that felt threatened. So perhaps this woman is more sinned against than sinner, a victim of men's manipulation and of patriarchal power. When you read the text again in, your, in, in the years that follow, I hope you'll remember that, that we can easily think, oh, morally reprehensible. Five husbands and the man she's with is now not her husband. Perhaps actually she's been a victim of men's abuse and misuse, and she has been marginalized because of the actions of others. And yet Jesus talks with her. Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, a religious leader, a notable, influential one. And this dignifies her. It confers on her a degree of honor unanticipated and unexpected. Remember in the very first sermon series I said the idea of self-esteem was a complete misnomer in Jewish culture, in Greco-Roman civilization. You didn't have self-esteem. Esteem was only given you by others. Honor was only accorded you by other people of higher status than you. Now I... Uh, 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 that's an important bullet point. She goes on and tells her whole village and brings them to Jesus. So she acts as an early apostle. I think that John is concerned to record and to report these encounters of Jesus with apostolic women to make sense of this new Christian community. Remember, John's gospel is written towards the end of the first century. It's the latest of the gospel accounts that we read. And by the end of the first century, the early Christian community, the early church, is full of women and men exercising leadership together prophesying, evangelizing, hosting churches, leading churches, going out on missionary journeys together, women and men 
scandalous. It's totally unheard of. And it's such a clear break from Jewish religion or contemporary Roman culture that John needs to explain that this all begins because Jesus has conversations with women when you wouldn't expect it. So this story of Jesus having a conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well, uh, Jesus' encounter with Mary Magdalene in John chapter 20 when she witnesses his resurrection and is sent to tell the other disciples. It's, it's an origin story. It's an origin story for the early church. The reason we have women leaders is because Jesus had women leaders. He spoke to women and he sent them to go and do things. The church through history has too often succumbed to patriarchal modes, either misreading its own sources or giving into external ideas about male hierarchy, instead of baptizing and co-opting ideas from Greek philosophy that actually are unhelpful and don't make, give a proper account of the biblical witness. But the Gospels point to a God in Christ who is radically egalitarian when it comes to women and men. And let me say to those, again, I'm going off piece, but it's, it's a hobby horse of mine, to those who think that St. Paul is a misogynist and against women, he said that women may remain unmarried. That is unheard of in Roman culture, to say that women can have equal status within the community of the church, within the family of the church, even if they are unmarried, is unheard of. That's radically egalitarian and inclusive. It's not misogynistic. Um, happy to talk more about that with anybody another time. The well, the water, the woman, and finally, <clears throat> the wedding. There's one final hint in the text that I think needs to be considered. And that is that Jesus is offering himself to this woman as the true bridegroom. As indeed, someone's having a great time there. Uh, as indeed he offers himself to men and women, to the church, to the world, as a true husband. So there's a wedding motif in these opening chapters of John. In John chapter 2, Jesus attends a wedding at Cana in Galilee, transforms water into wine. In John chapter 3, John the Baptist talks about waiting for the bridegroom to come. And in John chapter 4, Jesus appears at Jacob's well, reminding us of the meeting and the wedding of Jacob and Rachel and the founding of Israel. Talked about that already. Now this woman that Jesus encounters has no husband. Indeed, she's had a series of failed earthly husbands. And now the heavenly husband, the true husband, is encountering her. And there's a thread in the Old Testament that says that God will be a husband to Israel, a faithful husband who will care for his bride, a constant and loyal husband who will never cheat or forsake uh, or uh, fail the bride. And St. Paul uses this analogy in Ephesians 5. He says, husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves the church sacrificially. And he goes on to say that when he talks and writes about marriage between a husband and wife, actually he's more concerned to say something about the reality of the covenant relationship between Christ and the church, God and creation. Our society says that romantic coupling is the only way to find personal fulfillment. And if you're not romantically coupled, you are somehow less than. And to that end, you can find myriad different ways uh, to couple off and, uh, and, and aspire to couple off, uh, whether that's Tinder or soulmates or 
workplaces or arranged marriages, whatever you use as a contemporary well, a place in society to meet and unite romantically. And we know in our society that historic and biblical understandings of sex and procreation have all been suspended for the sake of experiencing romantic intimacy with as many as you choose in whatever way you choose. Sex in our society has simply become an appetite to be satisfied, whether or not within the bonds of marriage. But all this freedom is not bringing more happiness. The once married, the unmarried, the previously married, the unhappily married, the happily married but still yearning for ultimate affection and ultimate satisfaction are all still seeking the living water from the well that is Christ. And I think that this is the good news of this passage, that anyone who experiences themselves as marginalized, anyone ex who experiences themselves as thirsty and longing, yearning and waiting, can find themselves in the middle of Jesus' gaze if they come to him. Jesus is the lover of our soul. We are his beloved ones. His lover's gaze is fixed on us. No one is marginal in his eyes. And this means that whether you are married, unmarried, previously married, happily married, unhappily married, you can rest in this truth that it's, it's not your earthly marriage or otherwise that will bring you ultimate satisfaction. It's taking your place as the bride to the true bridegroom. It's taking your place in the church whose husband is Christ where you will find your ultimate satisfaction, your ultimate longing, your ultimate needs met. And he loves his bride. He loves his bride. Me. You, all of us, the bridegroom's gaze is fixed upon us. He yearns for us. He desires us. He longs to draw us in to this bond of covenant love and faithfulness if we will only say yes and sit and talk with him. And that is good news indeed. All those who may be on the margins find themselves in the very middle of the bridegroom's gaze and desire for his people. Shall we stand and pray together? Father God, we thank you that in Jesus you have come to satisfy the thirst that lies deep within every one of us, the thirst for living water. We thank you that our yearning for marital intimacy is satisfied in the marriage of heaven and earth, the marriage of Christ and the church. And whatever our condition in life, may we know ourselves not to be on the margins, but to be at the very middle of your lover's gaze for us. Come, Holy Spirit. Pour out the love of the Father into our hearts once again, that we may know ourselves to be loved, to be forgiven, to be free so that we might live now fullness of life in your kingdom. In Jesus' name.